been thinking a lot of just about how uh, great the church is. Just uh, the church is an amazing thing. Christian communities like this one, uh, people like us. Uh, you know, the church is this place where we uh, courageously and with lots of passion, lots of belief, lots of faith, we think that the world could be made right. It's, I mean, what a remarkable group of people. Uh, where we, we gather funds together, we share vulnerably together, we walk through painful things. I mean, this is just a beautiful vision for all of us that one day we are going to be 97 years old and we're going to be old and maybe we'll live in this city still together. And we will gather around and we'll be like, Brad, what a life he actually lived. You know, like that's a special thing. The church is so phenomenal. Uh, the church is also this place where we confess sins. And we fight to put those sins to death. You know, that's like part of the Lenten season. Uh, the mortification of sin. It's real powerful, really great, great word. Where we try to put away rage and lying and abuse and stealing. We try to put away all rudeness. Uh, the list kind of goes on and on, but we have our eyes set on sin and we want to repent and be made whole through all that, as Jared was saying. And, and then we also, the church, we have this amazing responsibility to call out sin elsewhere, too. In our world, in our society, we want to seek justice. We want to push back against oppression, against war, against abandonment that happens, a whole slew of things. Like, the church is amazing. It's pretty remarkable that we are this outpost, if you will, of the kingdom of God that doesn't know borders or even geopolitics, right? The kingdom is just that amazing, uh, that we're here battling and pursuing justice and love in this very world, in this very community. It's so great, right? You can tell I'm about to say but. But uh, there's something that hardly ever gets called out within a Christian community, and it's actually the very thing that kills the church. It's the only thing that can kill any church or kill the capital C church. Uh, and it's not persecution. We know that. Uh, history stands and says it's not persecution. You cannot kill the church through persecution. It's not through financial hardship. That's been evident for thousands of years. It's not through war. It's not even through a lack of vigilance on our own morality. It's the sin, though. It's the sin of self-righteousness. That I am right and I can be made right on my own. It's something within the church that's sort of out there in the open. We even kind of celebrate it sometimes. Like, look at Brad. Look how good he's made himself. Look at how he pulled himself up and has become a good dad and his finances are on order-ish. Uh, it's enjoyed. We might even think to ourselves, man, I've worked really hard to make myself well. There's things that I've done now after you walk with Jesus, as you pursue justice even, even as your mind gets like sort of shifted and changed and you think rightly about the world and you think, I'm worthy of saving. Of course I am. I found myself. I forgave myself. I cherish myself. This is self-righteousness and it's what kills the church or any church. It's an odd thing uh, that so often in the Christian life, we sing songs about forgiveness while we think that we don't need it. Like it's an odd thing. Or we hear people talk often about grace, but think, man, can't wait for my brother, my sister, and my neighbor to hear about this grace. Boy, do they need it. 
It's strange, you know, we, we talk about loving, but without having it really for the sinner or not seeing ourselves as a sinner. In uh, comfort, like in need of comfort from God, yes, we need comfort from God. In need of wisdom from God, like we're right there, yes, I need wisdom from God so I can be more right. Uh, we need insights from God. Sometimes we want a fresh word from God. But grace, well, I'm all set with that. Uh, what have I done recently to need grace? Maybe I've been wounded and I need healing. But me, a sinner, me in need, that's for those other people. You know, those other people really, really, really need it. Uh, it's a really ironic, strange thing that we need grace so much uh, that we don't even realize that we need grace. And so that's some of the questions that I have for you. Do you think that you need grace? Are you in need of that kind of finding, that kind of seeking of God? Are you a lost thing? Uh, the parables today are in response uh, to that kind of self-righteousness. The parables are told at a dinner party. It's pretty great. Jesus really only thinks about food. So it's like, I guess I was made in his image in that way. Uh, the parables are told while, they're, while he's eating with sinners and tax collectors and these self-righteous people who are there, which is a little ironic, and we'll talk about that later, but they're there, and they're saying, how could he be with these people? And so Jesus tells these stories in response to self-righteous, you know, religious people, kind of like us. And if you're not a religious person, uh, you'll take great comfort in knowing that Jesus has great words for those religious people that drive you nuts. But these are some of the most famous parables. They're the most recognizable images, really, of Christianity. Uh, you can know nothing about Christianity. You can have never stepped foot in a church in your life, but you know these stories and you know what a prodigal is. Uh, we talk about it all the time. Prodigal son has returned. I mean, that gets talked about uh, in sports, it's like amazing. Uh, I remember when Trevor Ariza was signed to play for the Lakers. Prodigal son's returned. Ten years too late because he's not very good anymore. I digress. Or Chris will have more things to say about his Clippers. Anyway, you'll all know this idea of the prodigal, the idea of the weary, the weak, the vulnerable son coming back and getting a party getting a second chance. And we love that, the grace for the sinner. It's powerful. But these stories are not really for the sinner because they're already at the party enjoying Jesus. These stories are for the religious like us. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna read them uh, right now. It's from Luke chapter 15. It's the, it's the whole chapter. It's really wonderful. It says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. 
I tell you that, the same, that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not, no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went out to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him, what was going on? And the, the, your brother has come home, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back, safe and sound. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. That's such good stuff, right? You know those stories. Is that new, new stories for anybody? No? Okay. I'm not going to call you out if it was. The, the first two stories are about really lost things. Uh, we've all lost our keys before. We've lost our phones. We get really angry. I get really angry. The more you look for it, the more angry you get. And then when you find it, the more excited you get. Uh, one time, uh, our dog 
Tabor ran out of the gate. Someone had left the gate open. He ran out. I remember hearing that he ran out, and so I ran after him. I was terrified, and then I turned this corner, and there he was being held by one of our neighbors. Uh, they grabbed him by the leash, and I just thought, oh, wow, this is so good. Uh, I felt so excited. I felt like throwing a party, and I felt like figuring out who opened the gate so that he got lost. Those were the things that I tried to do. Uh, but Tabor, our dog, he looks like a sheep. He's a white poodle, and, and that's why maybe I think about this. But the first story is about a shepherd who has all of these sheep, and it's his whole livelihood to care for these sheep. He's an outskirts, uh, desperate kind of person, uh, this shepherd, and so he has to go find this one. And so he leaves his sheep in the care of someone else, and he goes into the wilderness, goes far into uh, the distant lands, it says. He's like tracking this little animal. An animal, like, and if you know sheep, I know a lot of us are sheep farmers, but if you know sheep, they're just crazy, not very smart animals, but he's pursuing them anyway. And then as soon as the shepherd finds him, it says that he gets so uh, overwhelmed in joy that he puts the sheep around his shoulders and carries him back. Like he loves finding lost things. Then he tells the story of this woman who has 10 coins and then loses one. So the, the numbers kind of, you know, ante up here a little bit. So now there's 10 lost one. That's like 10%, not 1%. And what she does is she does what maybe some of us do every now and then where we sweep and vacuum and we clean up. We move all of the furniture out because we're looking for that one thing. All, everything gets moved. She's kind of turning her whole house upside down in search for this coin. And then uh, she finds it. And she calls all of her friends over to have a party over this coin. I think it's pretty ironic. She probably had to spin the coin that she'd just been looking for so that she could celebrate finding the coin. Loves a lost thing. Uh, we've all uh, experienced that, had things that we've lost that we've found. And I think Jesus, you know, this story is pretty great. There's these things that are so far away. There's these people, these souls that God pursues and he goes after and then he finds them. Sometimes the story hits me in a bit of a funny way though. It's like, okay, Jesus wants us uh, to celebrate these things, to celebrate these lost things when he's found them. Okay, we might think, I get it. When one of those crazy sinners, you know, with one of those really wild stories, when one of them comes in, we shouldn't judge them and we shouldn't put them down, but we should, you know, be excited like, like Jesus says. We should be happy. We should rejoice. After all, Jesus is telling this story to people who are muttering underneath their breath. He welcomes in sinners. Can't believe it. So we think, okay, we should rejoice and we should get excited when lost people are found. We think that's so great even. I'm excited that my God, that Jesus is someone who brings people in. Man, have you heard their story? Wow, Jesus really had to break the bank on grace for them. That's so powerful, that's so cool. My heart should be one of rejoicing. Isn't our God wonderful? And he is. But what we don't realize is that we're one of those people in need of finding, of seeking. It's like uh, Buzz Lightyear, original Toy Story, made like 30 years ago. 
but I think there's a Toy Story 7 in production. But in the original 1994 Toy Story, it's pretty amazing. Buzz Lightyear is in this bedroom with all of these toys, but he doesn't think he's a toy. He thinks that he's landed on this planet and that he's somehow figuring everything out. He cannot see that he is actually made of plastic and a child's plaything. He has no idea. And church, we don't know who we are either. We think that we're living in this meritocracy where we've like landed on a planet and we get to be just like the super great heroes for everyone else when we're actually living in the land of lavish grace. It doesn't matter how lost the sheep were or how lost the coin was. They were lost and they were in need of finding. The second or the third story is about two sons. It's the classic story. Father has two sons. The younger one says, I want my inheritance now. I would, you know, prefer you were dead, but you haven't died yet. You've lived too long. That's basically what the younger son is saying. So give me my stuff now. And the father in mercy and compassion says, sure. And he splits up his property between his two sons, half and half, which is also pretty amazing because the younger son shouldn't get anything. It's pretty remarkable. But he takes all of his money and he spends it and he squanders it. He goes to a different land, you know, like Las Vegas or Los Angeles, something with a loss in it because he becomes lost, huh? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but he, he does this crazy life. Uh, he loses all of his money uh, because, you know, land is better than spending it, and that's what he's done. But he spent it all away, and he's there in a pig trough. He sold himself into indentured servitude. Whenever it says that he hired himself out to a citizen, he basically went to someone and said, I'm going to sell myself into slavery. And that's what he does. And he's there, you know, admiring the food that the pigs are eating, and then he comes to his senses. Doesn't say how long that happened. I think it probably took a long time for him to come to his senses that way. And he thinks, my dad is so good. Even his servants have more food than I have right now, and I'm starving to death. And so he makes this rational decision. I'm going to go home, and I'm going to give this great speech I'm going to tell him, look, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I mean, how remorseful, right? Like, all things I've sinned against. Could you, I'm no longer worthy to be a son to you. Just let me be a servant. And so he comes, but the father has been there waiting and watching. When it says that he saw him from a long way off, It's almost as if the father has put up with his wealth a whole network of spies and notifiers who can see when the son comes back into the land. And the father can see this raggedy, wounded, poor, starving, thin, much thinner son than left. And he can see him and he runs to him and he meets him there. And the son tries to share, you know, part of his speech. He gets halfway through it. He doesn't get to ask to be a servant. He just gets to the part where he says, I'm not worthy to be your son. But by that point, the father is kissing and hugging him so much, the story stops and the father interrupts and he says, you were lost and now you're found. Then he begins giving orders to throw a party like the banquet that we talked about last week, a huge extravagant party where the the animals that he had been saving for some extravagant event, he decides now's the time. Because a dead thing has come back to life. 
Because a resurrection has happened. A son at the distant land who I never thought would return has come back. He's so excited. Death to life. A child in shame and hunger and abandonment is now coming to get this lavish meal. He becomes so desperate, he returns and he experiences a party. And then there's the older son who who is working in the fields tirelessly. When the, the property was split, the older son stayed. Having his property diminished, he continued to work on it. He did what his father asked him to do. He was obedient. He was faithful. He was there every morning. I mean, if he's coming back, it's like he showed up early, stayed late. You know, it's like he had probably the perfect performance review. You know, I know it's almost the end of the first quarter. You're about to get your performance reviews, right? He had a perfect one. What a, what a son. I mean, he was getting home after all the servants had already gotten home. I mean, that's how dedicated he was. And he hears all this commotion in the house. And I think that's when he first started to get mad. Like, okay, so there was a party and nobody invited me and told me. And I've been out here checking on the orchards. Nobody told me there was a party. What's this party about? A servant says, your, your brother that we all assumed and just treated like was dead is back. And your dad's throwing a big party, big calf. And the son's thinking, I know that calf. I've been feeding that calf. I've been giving that calf food. I, prob- I chose that calf on behalf of my father. And you're saying that that's the one that they're going to celebrate with this guy, this random person, this son of his, not my brother, the son of his. And then the father, though, sees the older son outside of the, the realm of the party, and the father pursues him. I mean, this is really great. Like the the father doesn't pursue to the distant land the younger son, but the father walks out of the party. He leaves it. He leaves all of the commotion, more than a hundred, more than a 10, and he goes to the one and he sits down with them and it just says that he pleaded with him. But the older son says back, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. It's as if, he wasn't just working with his dad, walk, watching his dad, you know, care for a farm and care for land. He wasn't there just enjoying the presence of his dad. Last night, Truman and I got to watch the last several minutes of the Laker game. I'm going to just say the season ended then. LeBron scored 56 points. It was remarkable. We were just hugging and high-fiving each other. And it was like, I'm so happy I'm a dad. And I think he was thinking, I'm so happy I'm your son because we're supposed to be in bed. (laughs) And it's like, that's the environment, right? Fathers and sons, that's what we all want. That's what we all long for. But this guy has been thinking that he's been a slave to his father this whole time. See, the younger son, he sold himself into slavery. The older son thinks that he was born into slavery. And I just wonder how many of us who've accepted the message of Jesus and say, I want to follow him. I believe in him. I'm walking in the resurrection. We think that we've been born again, not into freedom, but into slavery. Where now it's just about us working really hard, pulling ourselves up to pursue a righteous life, working in the fields of the harvest or whatever as a slave. 
not as a free son. The son's saying, it's not fair. They don't deserve it. Don't you know what they did to us? Don't you know what the son did to us? There's also the added layer of if, if the father is welcoming back in this younger son, the older son knows, okay, now my inheritance is split again. That's really great. And here we might grow in some sort of concern for ourselves and our souls, or even our conviction, like might experience some conviction And we might see ourselves, oh, I am the older brother. Maybe that's what some of you are feeling right now. Perhaps that's me. Perhaps that's my posture towards God. And horrified, we might think, now's the time for me to change my ways. Maybe that's what you're thinking. All right, I better get up and I better be excited about the party. We might pull ourselves up off off of our little stump of self-scolding, you know? We might think, all right, I'm going to go back into this party. I'm going to, you know, smile and have a good time because that's what the Father is asking me to do and pleading with me. We might try to change our bad attitudes just a little bit. We might try to muster up a sense of grace. You know, I find it so interesting that the context of the story is not of the self-righteous people far from the party. Like, that's not what was happening. Jesus was having a party, as he always does, eating at dinner, and there were tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees together. And we know that from the, even the whole story of Luke, except for the, the final supper that Jesus has just with his disciples, just with those like handfuls of women and men. Outside of that, he's always, it's a mixed company. And so this story, I'm going to go out on a limb, but I'm pretty sure I'm right, is filled with these religious people and sinners, and they're all at the feast together. I think that's interesting because I think it's as if what happens is they begrudgingly go along with Jesus because he has words of authority, words of life, his theology, his miracles, it all kind of matches up. And they're there in that party but they're not there in their hearts in that party. So you can't sort of self-work yourself into the kingdom. You can't conjure up grace inside of you. You can't just pretend that you're extending it to others. You know, uh, I've had, you know, grandparents too and grandmothers. Sarah's grandmother sounds really lovely and I have some, I have one, two that are like that. But one of my grandmothers, she always gave gifts, but she knew uh, exactly how much she had given and how it was used, you know. We had to call her and be like, hey, this is how much money I, this is what I spent, you know, with the gift that you gave me. And I think she was keeping a ledger somewhere. That's not grace, right? But we, we can't, like, kind of make yourself into a gracious person. You can't. And I think that puts us in a bind, especially if we all hear these stories and we just want to work harder or get better in our brains or in our hearts. But I think that Jesus isn't trying to tell us what to do in these stories. He's not telling us about uh, even necessarily uh, how we need to respond to him. I think he sees a whole environment and he tries to tell a story about who he is. He's trying to tell a story about how he operates. 
Because you'll never be free from that self-righteous thing by looking to others or looking to yourself. It's only through understanding and seeing Jesus rightly. He's trying to say, this is who I am. I want to give you a taste of me. I want to give you a taste of my motivation and how I operate. I want you to understand who I am. The heart of God, that's what it is. The parables are about God. And really, the parables should be called, and I'm going to write a letter to Zondervan, and I'm going to tell him, you know, like, you've done it wrong in the Bible. Like, you've put the wrong headings here. Because we have them, I'm sure, in your Bibles, too. It says, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son, right? Is that what it says in your Bible? Okay. They're wrong. This is just a reflection of our own narcissistic spiritual pursuit because they should be called the parable of the shepherd because it's not a story about a lost sheep. It's a story about a shepherd who pursues lost sheep. It's not a story about a coin. The story is about a woman who reveals the very heart of God as she turns everything upside down to look for the lost thing. It's not the story about son or even sons. Some are getting clever in the Bibles. are like the story of the lost sons. No, it's the story of a father. That's what it is. And what Jesus is doing by these three stories is he's trying to create for us a collage or a mosaic of the very heart of God towards us. The shepherd, Jesus is the one who will risk it all, who will go into the wilderness, who will pursue for days from eternity past to eternity future. He will look for what has been lost until he finds it. And when he finds it, when he finds the lost, broken, weary souls, he joyfully puts it on his back. It's as as if uh, the writer of Hebrews knows this story when it says the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And it's, and it's about the woman who turns everything upside down. And God's saying, this is my whole pursuit in this world. I'm taking strong, making it weak. I'm making the powerful, making them vulnerable. This is what I am doing. I'm turning everything upside down because I want to find the lost things. And then I'm going to call a big party to celebrate that. It's the heart of God found in this woman. Or it's the father who says, I will wait and I will welcome, I will fatten a calf, I will prepare a banquet of celebration for when the lost things come home. And I will pursue even the most religious, self-righteous, whether they're in church or not, we've got a lot of the self-righteousness thing going down. I'm going to go after them forever and I'm going to give them this message over and over again. I have been with you this whole time. We have to celebrate the dead things coming to life. And that's the refrain over and over again through these stories is rejoice and celebrate. Each of the stories ends with the party. I guess they could be, I would be okay if Zondervan said, we're going to label them the parable of the shepherd and the party, the parable of the, the, the woman and the party, the parable of the father and the party. I'd be okay with that. But that's what it truly is about, the rejoicing and all of these things. And we come together today, and we call it Celebration Sunday, and we eat tacos. It's really yummy. Uh, But there's something true that I would like for us to understand as a church, because I think that knowing this truth that I'm about to say is what actually leads to incredible joy 
and freedom from all of the things that we've been talking about. And this is the truth, that God is celebrating your salvation, your return, your finding. Each parable ends with how much greater is the rejoicing in heaven. I mean, that's a coin. That's a sheep. You're an eternal soul. The scoffing of the self-righteous, this man eats with sinners. It melts when we understand the very nature of God that he rejoices over you being saved. It's what's prophesied in Zephaniah. Um, because Jesus, I think, in all of these stories, he's trying to tell us that it's, it's so much better than sharing a meal, that I'm not welcoming people into a meal. I'm welcoming people into the thing we were created for. Zephaniah 3.17, it says, the Lord your God is with you, just like the Father tells the Son, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. This is what the father is doing with the older son. This is what the shepherd has been doing the whole time. It's what the woman has done, singing and delighting over the finding of the lost things. So we get to repent and believe that today because God is full of grace. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the bounty 